Well, I'm sure you've certainly heard the truth before. God is a spirit, or God is spirit. But what does this mean, that God is a spirit? What does it mean? And we get this kind of idea, or you're already getting an idea in your head as I, as I kind of talk about that. But, but as we look at God's Word, maybe you've seen things like God's hand, or God's finger, or God's eyes, or His mouth, and, and, and what does that mean? How does that fit in with the fact that God is a spirit? What about God's omnipresence? That word meaning that He is everywhere. Is He really everywhere? How is Jesus everywhere? God, these my God this morning, and this afternoon. Wonderful truths about God, and we'll, we'll be understanding about who God is. But have a look at your sheet. First thing, God is spirit or God and the foundation to the Samaritan in John it says God is spirit must worship and truth and this is a fundamental truth about God being he is a, he has his soul spirit and the Bible uses those terms interchangeably soul and spirit just like angels and demons are also spirits that we cannot see God is likewise a spirit yes he's different from all other spirits and yet he is a spirit now, God has no visible bodily form, no, no physical substance. He, the fact that Christ, when he was raised from the dead, and when they saw him and, and they touched him, it made that all the more, in one sense, beautiful as we see the God-man and, and who he was. Perfect unity between God who is spirit and man. But when we think about God as true as to bear, and the first thing God does not be like us. I'm going to give you guys some. Alright, Mark 16, Exodus 12, yeah, Proverbs 15, verse 3. Felicity, are you okay to look up Isaiah 40, verse 5? Isaiah 40, verse 5. Uh, John, I think you look up uh, Hosea 11, verse 8. This is great for testing my memory. Uh, Jacob, I think you look up uh, Isaiah 59, verse 1. Right. Then, so for me, I'll get you to look up John 1, 10. John 1, verse 18. Uh, Natalie, John 6, 46. All right, Talene, I'll get you to look up John 4, verses 23 to 24. Penny, yep. Acts 17.29. John, I'll get you to look up Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. Sorry, the other John. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. The Hungarian John. Now, this first point, God does not have a body like us. Now, the verses, the next five verses are going to be read out for us. Talk about God having body parts in some instance, all right, and in some respects, and we'll have a look at what that means. But um, as we go through these verses, have a think about what it says about God, uh, and, and we'll dig into it. Um, Marshall, Exodus 24. Sure. Exodus 24, 10 to 11. <clears throat> oh, context. This is when they're at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb, uh, and uh, yes, they're invited to come have this feast with God, but yeah. And saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. 
But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Thank you. So what have we got there? They saw under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire. Right? As clear as the sky itself. And yet it says that he did not stretch out his hand against them. Alright? He did not stretch out his hand against them. Alright, Eliza, Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Thank you. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, are in every place. All right, we'll look more at that when we, when we talk about God's omniscience or His all-knowingness. Um, but His eyes are in every place. Doesn't that sound strange to you? Our eyes are only in one place. And they move around, but that's it. But God's eyes are in every place. Um, so His eyes are not like our eyes. And as we go through, none of His descriptions of His uh, physical body parts, as we would call them, are not like ours at all. But yeah, we'll look at that more. Uh, Felicity, Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thank you. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. There you go. Isaiah 11, verse 8. Thanks, John. Zeboyim and Adma. Um, but it says, My heart is turned over within me. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. So does God have a heart? Like us? No. Does God have a heart? Yes. He has affections, but in a different way to us. Our affections change so easily. They're so often affected by everything going on around us. So does God have love? Yes. But differently. He is not changed by external things as we are. But he does have a heart. Um, Isaiah, uh, Jacob, Isaiah 59 verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, for his ear does, that it cannot hear. Thank you. All right? His hand is not short, it cannot save. Or his ear is so dull, it cannot hear. All right? So we've got his feet, his hands, his eyes, his mouth, his heart, his ear. We've got all these, these descriptions of God. And theologians use a term, it's called anthropomorphic language, right? It's a big word. Anthropomorphic language. Anthropos, meaning humans, and morphos, meaning form. So, human form, right? So, it uses this human form or physical language that we would understand to describe God. God uses baby language, as it were. It's baby language for God, right? It's like when we would, would, we would make small little sounds, right? Or we, or we speak some very small sentences, right, to babies or, or, to, or, or toddlers even, um, right? So they can understand us better. And that's what God does for us in His Word so often. He uses words like His hands, His eyes, His feet, His mouth, so that we would understand Him better. Now, each body part is used as a metaphor to describe something about God. Joel Beakey writes this, he says, God's hand and arm serve as metaphors for his power as, as creator and saviour. His finger can represent the work of his spirit. God's eyes function as a figure of speech for his knowledge and his providence. 
They can't be physical eyes because they are in every place. God's heart and soul represent his thoughts and affections. And I'll add to that. God's feet are a sign of his authority and transcendence because his feet are on his enemies and over all his creation. God's mouth represents his self-revelation in his word, what he has spoken to us. And his ear is that which he uses, as it were, to hear the cry of his people and the prayers of his people. So God is described in all these ways to show these truths about God, that God hears his people, that God has all authority in heaven and earth, that his word comes with authority, that he uses his power, that the Holy Spirit is poured out, whatever it is. Right, that he sees, that he knows all things. God is a spirit, and he does not have hands and eyes and ears and mouth. Not mouth. But God has all these attributes ascribed to him so that we would understand more about who he is. But again, God does not have a body as we do. And that's important to understand. Next point, God cannot be seen. Alone, even this alone would be evidence that God is a spirit. Uh, Josh, I'll get you to read out for us John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has been Thank you. No one has seen God at any time. And already in your head you're thinking, aren't there people who saw God in the Old Testament? What about the New Testament? And we'll look at that in a sec. But no one has seen God at any time. But have we seen God? The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared and what He has explained Him. And Natalie, I'll get you to read out for us John 6 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, save He which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Thank you. No one has seen the Father except the one who has been sent from God, i.e., Jesus. He has seen the Father. Alright, so we get this, this, this picture that God has, is not. And has not been seen by mankind. Paul identifies God in, in Colossians 1.15 as the invisible God. In 1 Timothy 1.17 he says that God is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. So God cannot be detected by any human observation or by using our physical eyes. Why? Because he's a spirit. Because he doesn't have a, a physical form as we do. He doesn't have a body as we do. What about Exodus 24.10? As we read before, as Marshall from memory read before, when it says that they saw the God of Israel. Or what about in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled, as he said, with God face to face. I mean, you can't get closer than face to face, right? Jacob wrestled with God face to face. Or in Genesis 18, where God appeared right, as a man. Right, as he did to Jacob, to Abraham. And Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah to God himself. Are they not seeing God? But all of these are what we, what we call in theology theophanies. Theophanies. Theos meaning God and phanos meaning in appearance. Right, So an appearance of God. Now does God actually have a human body? No. But does he show himself to us in such ways so that we can understand him and relate to him and interact with him? Yes. And he did that throughout scripture at various times. So in the same way that anthropomorphic language linguistically describes God's character and work, theophanies visually 
represent the presence and character of God. So these two ways, even though God is a spirit, we have to understand God. So we understand God through language, anthropomorphic language, and visually throughout times in history past, in, throughout um, the Bible's history, with theophanies, visually, so that we can understand more about God's character. But the next point, God is personal. God is personal. And this is another implication that flows from the fact that God is a spirit. He is not an impersonal force like Mother Nature. He's not the universe, which is an impersonal force. Even in, in John 1, where, where John says, in the beginning was the Logos, right? it was the Word. To the Greeks, the Logos was an impersonal force that kind of held everything together. And yet, John was saying that Jesus is the Logos. It's not an impersonal force that holds everything together. It's He who is the Word, not it who is the Logos. God is a personal, conscious being with a mind, a heart, and a will. Different from us, as I said before, but He does have knowledge. He knows all things. He does have affections. He loves His people. And He has a will. He works everything according to the counsel of His will. I'm telling you, I'm going to read John 4, verses 23-24 for us. Jesus does here is he connects the fact that God is a spirit with the worshippers that he's seeking seeking to worship him. So he's connecting the fact that he is a spirit, that God is a spirit, and that the worshippers he's seeking are to worship him in spirit and truth. Now sometimes, so this spirit and truth kind of idea, sometimes people think it's the Holy Spirit, and that could be true. Uh, we are to, as, it's, as Joel said, I uh, was preaching from Colossians, uh, sorry, Philippians 3 this morning, we are to worship in the Spirit of God. Right? And that's true. That's an important truth. But what most people understand and interpret what it's saying here is that we are to worship in spirit and truth. We are to worship with our, with our spirit, with our soul, with the depth of our being. And so all our worship is to be in truth, to be according to the Word of God, but it's also to be with our spirit, with our soul, to the very depths of our being. It is to be genuine and to be heartfelt. And this is in contrast to the Jews and how they often worship God, which was according to the external factors and all the traditions. And so they brought God all their sacrifices, and yet it was an abomination to God because they did not worship Him in this way, in spirit and in truth. And so as we connect that idea of God being spirit with the fact that He seeks worshippers who worship Him in spirit and truth. We have this idea that God is not an impersonal force, but that He is a spirit. He is personal. There is intimacy in worship. It's not a disconnected thing, right? Where we, where we just say things and God looks down and goes, oh yeah, thanks. No, there's an intimacy there between God as spirit, a personal spirit, and us, we who are worshipping God from the depths of our soul. 
with our spirit. Those are the kind of worshippers that God is seeking for himself. Those who worship with their hearts according to his word. Because God is personal, you can see why idols are foolish. Because God is a spirit, because he's personal, you can see why idols are stupid. That's the way the Bible portrays them. Not just sinful, which they are, but stupid, foolish. Because how can you represent God with an idol? Right? If He's the personal, the true, and the living God, idols are impersonal, false, and dead. If God is the personal, living, and true God, they are impersonal, dead, and false. They're meaningless. And that's when we come to our fourth point in God is spirit. God is unlike the gods of the nations. Henny, I'll get you to read out for us Acts 17, 29. Therefore, since you are God's offspring, you should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, and evil to make our men be something skilled. Thank you. Paul's contrasting the idols that he's just witnessed, right, and the altar to the unknown God. He's contrasting the fact that there's this unknown God that, that they presume to not know. He's saying... The God, the actual true God of the universe, He's not like idols. Right? It says, right, uh, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the craft and thought of man. Right? An idol is formed by man. Right? It's all, it all comes out of the ideas of man. And yet God is not, cannot be formed. And that's why when in, in, in the book of Exodus, Exodus um, 32, I think, where they make the, the molten calf, the golden calf, right? What does Aaron say? He says, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt, right? They knew it was Yahweh or Jehovah who brought them out of Egypt. And yet he said, these are your gods. Right? And they made this molten calf to represent the God. Because, why? Because they wanted to see God. Right? They couldn't. They couldn't. And they needed to know that. And that's why we have in Exodus 20, um, which I'll get Hungarian John to read out for us, Exodus 20 verses 4 to 5. You'll see why this is the second of the Ten Commandments after you shall have no other gods before me. Thanks, John. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in heaven below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Even if they tried to make the idol of God, notice what John read out for us. Sorry, you'll have to listen. It says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Even if they tried to make an idol out of God like they did with the mom calf. It's not God. It's them, distinct from God. Right? God deserves their worship. God is a spirit, and He cannot be an idol. So any idol cannot be God by necessity. Because why? Because God is a spirit. But lastly, God has no limits. My apologies, I didn't put this in the outline. God has no limits. Alright, I'm going to give you some verses again. Alright, Marshall, I'll get you read out 1 Kings 8.27. Uh, 
1 Kings 8.27 from us. Eliza, you okay to read out Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10? Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10. Uh, Felicity, I'll get you to read out Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. This keeps you on your toes. Alright. Uh, Lebanese John, I'll get you to read out. <laughs> You are Lebanese, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. good. Just use the good name. There you go. You're definitely not Hungarian. Um, I'll get you to read out Psalm 139, verses 11 to 12. Alright. All right, Jacob, I'll get you to read out 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. Uh, Josh, I think you read out Revelation 14, verse 10. Natalie, I think you read out Psalm 23, verse 4. And Talia, I'll get you to read out Revelation 6, verse 16. Sorry, Hungarian, John and Henny. You can turn to any one of those verses. All right. 1 Kings 8, 27. Thanks, Marshall. No worries. Can't make this a memory verse from the worship song. Go for it. I forget, yeah. Okay. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God really dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Thank you. Because God is a spirit, he has no limits. Whether it's spatial, whether it's temporal, right? whether it's time. Now, we looked at that last week. Right? God is without limits. He has no time. He's not constrained by time. And so when we think about God not having any spatial limits, that's why we come to our next point. God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. As 1 Kings 8.27 says, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, he was saying to God. And so we're going to have a look at God is omnipresent. Now that word omni means all. Right? God is all present everywhere. He's everywhere all at once. And he dwells in all of his creation. Thanks, Liza. I'll get you out. Psalm 139, verse 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I... Sorry, am I going up to you? Okay. <laughs> If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Thank you. <laughs> it's a wonderful psalm. This is probably the classic text on God's omnipresence. Right? The fact that God is everywhere. And as the psalm says, we can't escape from God. We can't run, and that's my first point, God is omnipresent. We can't run hide from God as it says where can I go from your spirit where can I flee from your presence if I send it to heaven you're there what does it say Sheol or the grave there right the wings of the dawn in the east right the remote parts of the sea in the west right he's covered every every single place right in his mind we can't go anywhere where God is not if that makes sense 
Wherever we go, God's, God's there. It's not that we go somewhere and God you know, beats us there. It's not that God's quicker than us, right? Like John beat Peter to the tomb, right? It's not like that. God is everywhere, all at once. Uh, Felicity, I'll get you to read uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24 for us. God says, "Am I not a God who is? Am I a God who is near and not a God far off?" So if you if you try and constrain God to being, you know, in this church or, or with you by yourself, but you know, just that and not a God far off, you don't have a, a correct view of who God is. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that God can't see him? What's the answer in your head? No, right? It's a rhetorical question. It's like Paul uses all these rhetorical questions. You already know the answer. God says, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? God is both near and far. And we'll go through God's omniscience, the fact that he knows all things in another session. But you can't hide from God. You can't run from him. And as we'll see at the end, that's a good thing if you're a believer. And it's a bad thing for an unbeliever. It's a great comfort if you're a believer. And it should bring terror if you're an unbeliever. God is everywhere. He fills heaven and earth. And it's not as if... It's not as if God is, you know, 80% in this part of his creation and 20% in this part of his creation, right? Because God can't be fully everywhere. No, he fills heaven and earth. He fills heaven and earth just as much as the fullness of God dwells in Christ. The same amount. Complete. Full. No limits. No limits. And that's why we say God is everywhere. He's imminent, right? He, his presence is everywhere where he is. Darkness doesn't hinder him. John, I'll get you to read out Psalm 139, verse 11 to 12. But I said, surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from me. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to me. Thank you. Hide yourself in the darkest place. You can't hide from God. It says darkness and light are alike to you. The same, right? To us, it's completely different, right? Imagine we had no windows in here and it was just all completely dark and we managed to block out the windows. It'd be dark and maybe there'd still be a little bit of light. And yet, God to God, it's, there's no difference whatsoever. We can't hide from God. But next, an important point, God is not his creation. God is not his creation. And that's where the, this idea of pantheism comes out, uh, comes out, right? Where God is everything, right? God is the blade of grass. God is the tree, right? God is in all his creation because God is the creation. But no, God is, even though God is everywhere, right? And in one sense, God is in everything. God is not everything, right? He is not the blade of grass. He is, right? And when we start to get the idea about the universe is God, Suddenly that becomes, it breaks down all distinction between Creator and His creation. So He's distinct, He's transcendent. As Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And yet the, the whole earth isn't God. That's important to understand. But lastly, God is especially present with his people. If God fills heaven and earth, he is always with all of his presence everywhere. And yet the Bible does speak of a distinction. That God is with his people, that he's not with everyone else. That's why it's such a comfort when God says that he's with his people. He says, I will be your God, you shall be my people. Even it says of God in, in the Old Testament, where it says that, what other nation is like us, Israel is saying, right? that has a God so near to it, that whenever we call on him, God is near. Yet God is omnipresent at the same time. And when it talks about God being near his people or with his people, it's talking about God's favour, the special blessing of his presence. And that's why when God was displeased with his people, the tent of meeting in the Old Testament with Israel in, in, in the wilderness was moved outside the camp. Where God removed himself from the presence of his people. Or when you have the scapegoat, right, which was sent outside the camp, it couldn't be in God's presence. Or even with the sections in the tabernacle, right, where there were restrictions to God's presence. Adam and Eve, right, they were, what were they? They were, were they allowed to kind of dwell in the garden and, you know, still hang out with God? No. They were banished from the Garden of Eden, right? Banished from the Garden of Eden. And so God being with his people was a sign of his blessing and his redemptive presence. And that's why Jesus is called Emmanuel in Isaiah. It says, and Matthew, he is God with us. Right? And so while God is omnipresent, at the same time, Christ coming down is God even more with us in a sense. Because God is showing his favour and his salvation and his blessing to his people. He came to dwell personally with his people. He who is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact representation or the express image of his person, of his nature. Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So how will Jesus be with his people always to the end of the age? Where, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Is he a man? Yes. And so he has those spatial limits as every other man does. He's, he's seated in heaven. Yeah, don't forget that he's fully divine. And so while Jesus is at the same time fully man or truly man and in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God, he is at the very same time with all his people. Why? Because he's omnipresent. Because he's God. And yet he's also with his people as he dwells in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So is Christ in heaven? Yes. Is he with his people? Yes. To the end of the age. Intimately. Personally. With his people. With those whom he loves. Now, does this mean God is in hell? The answer is yes. God is in hell. Often people speak of it as the fact that you know, hell is where God isn't. Right? And that's what's so bad about hell. Let me tell you, what makes hell so bad is the fact God is there. God is there. And He is the one pouring out His wrath on the wicked. But what about 
2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Jacob, I'll get you read that for us. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Thank you. Right, it talks about the wicked there. Right, those who receive, uh, yeah, those who, who worship the beast uh, from memory. It says they'll be away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Right? So in some respects, they are away from the presence of the Lord. Right? But this, uh, this brings back that idea of, of Israel, or of God removing Himself from Israel at certain times, or, or Israel not having God's presence. Same thing. Was God still omnipresent? Yeah. Is God still in hell? Yes. Or otherwise God would cease to be God. God has to be in hell because He is the Spirit and He is omnipresent. He has no limits on Himself. But was God there redemptively? No. Was God there with the, with the favour of His presence and the blessing of His presence? No. Revelation 14 verse 10. I'll get Josh to read that out. He Himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of His indignation. He shall be tormented goes even more specifically not that God is just there but that the lamb uh, the wrath is being poured out on them in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb the lamb don't we get this idea of this this one who is gentle and lowly in heart who is meek yes but even while he's the lamb of God he is the conquering Lion of Judah, at the very same time. And this lamb is the one pouring out the wrath on all those in hell. So is Christ in heaven? Yes. Is he everywhere? Yes. Is he even in hell? Yes. And it will forever be that way for all of eternity. But what should be our response? I, I hear that hear that this before. Our response that God is a spirit or that God is omnipresent. Well, first, God is a spirit... What do we do? We are to worship Him in spirit and truth. We are to worship Him in spirit and truth. Right? We are to worship Him from the very depths of our soul. Our worship is to be genuine and heartfelt. But also because God is a spirit, because God is a God we cannot see, our worship is to be by faith as well. Our worship is to be by faith. And we are to constantly feed our faith with his word. We're constantly to feed our faith with his word. And as we take in these spiritual realities, they feed our faith so that we, by faith, see the God, not with our physical eyes, that we will see him one day with our physical eyes, our resurrected bodies. We see him now by faith. The eyes of faith, as it were. Um, Natalie, I'll get you to read out for us. Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thank you. So this, this truth about the fact that God is everywhere, is omnipotent, brings great comfort to his people. That even though, the, this, as David the psalmist says, even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. But the evil's there. Fear the evil. He doesn't need to fear the evil. Why? It says, for you are with me. You are with me. Right? If we, 
Even if we, in our sin, try and hide from God, we can't hide from God. But we know that as soon as we come to God in repentance and faith, we know that He is there and He will comfort us and forgive us in Christ Jesus. Surely, as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, after the verse now they read out, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Just as much as the dogs follow the people of God in a bad way, as it were, so goodness and mercy, even more than that, will follow the believer all the days of their life, and indeed into all eternity. But for the unbeliever, it's the opposite. It doesn't bring comfort. It should bring dread, terror. Talia, I'll get you to read out for us Revelation 6, 16. The wicked cannot hide themselves. The unbeliever cannot, cannot hide themselves. As much as they, they want the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, right? they want these rocks to crush them. Why? To hide themselves from the presence of God and of the Lamb. Because the presence of God brings terror. And that is why, even though every, every person knows deep down in their heart that there is a God, they convince themselves, Romans 1 says, that he doesn't exist and they don't give honour to him or thanks to him. Right? And that's why the average person you walk up to says, oh, I don't believe in a God. Or they believe in some higher power, but not the God of the Bible. Why? Because as soon as they believe that there is a God who is the God of the Bible, who will hold them to account, and he's everywhere. They can't hide from him. That's a God who inspires terror. They don't want that God. And so they push it down, push this truth about God down and down and down until they convince themselves that God doesn't exist. But on Judgment Day, there will both be eternal and everlasting comfort. And the believers see God. What a joy that will be. But the wicked on the Day of Judgment will also see God. And they will see that they have been seen all along and they will be in the presence of the Lamb. Not in a good way all of eternity so these truths about the spirituality of God and the omnipresence of God are wonderful truths to us as believers to the unbeliever that is why we must tell them about Christ so that they may be saved and they may come to see the omnipresence of God as a beautiful thing Yeah. let me finish with prayer Gracious Almighty God, we thank you so much that you are a spirit. You are a spirit and you have no form that we can see. And yet, Lord, we long, we long to see you in heaven with our resurrected bodies and eyes. Lord, we don't know how that will be and what a wondrous thing to even think about. But Lord, help us to see you by faith now. Help us to see that you are everywhere. And may that bring us great comfort and joy and hope. Oh Lord, you're a spirit, and you're a, you're a spirit who is in a category all by yourself. And we pray that we will always worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.